John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? But no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we know from John chapter 6 that it says, This is the work of God, that we believe in in him whom he has sent. And so we ask, would you do that work in our midst, in our congregation, even now? Would you do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we know as we read through the Gospels that Jesus was sought after, that he became rather popular. He gained this larger following that would would press in around him. There were moments where Jesus is, um, you know, so tired and exhausted from the overwhelming number of people and the needs that he gets into a boat and he's going to cross over to the other side of the sea to kind of get away and escape. But the people are following him on the shore so that by the time he gets to the other side, they're already there and they're waiting for him. And you could imagine it was very difficult to find Jesus alone. There are some moments in scripture where you see that, where he is alone with some of the disciples, the apostles. And then this morning we see a particular moment where he is alone with a man. If you could be alone with Jesus and and talk to him and you had questions for him, what would you ask? What would be the thing that's on your heart that you say, okay, I have my one shot. I'm going to ask this one question. 
Would your, would your question be, why is my baby crying right now in the middle of the sermon? <laughs> would your, maybe, maybe you'd be like me and your, your question would be, Lord, why did you allow this to happen in my life? Why did you allow that event to go on? Why did you allow this trial I'm going through right now? Why? What's it for? What's the purpose of all these things? Maybe your question would be more in line with, hey, Jesus, we just want to know, when exactly did you create the earth? What was the exact date? Oh, and while you're at it, would you tell us exactly when is it that you're coming back so we know? Perhaps you'd say, look, I... I, I want to understand the deeper things. Help me understand the Trinity. How exactly does this all work? I get parts of it, but it's still fuzzy. Uh, maybe you'd say baby baptism or believer's baptism. And I know there, because I know a few of you, I know a few of you would say, ask Jesus this. My little dog Fluffy, when she died, did she make it to doggy heaven? You know, is she there now? Will I see her again? And, and as goofy and as silly as that kind of a question is, at least it's, it's more in line with the very reason that Jesus came. Um, perhaps you don't even get the question out of your lips because Jesus knows what you're going to ask before you even get to ask it. In the middle of, of Jesus answering you, he's going to steer you from what you think you need to have answered and figured out to what your greatest need really is. You know, we, we think our greatest need is to be cured from a physical ailment. Uh, we, we think our greatest need is to, to finally be married or to finally have that child that we long for. Or to, I, I, I need a new vehicle, let's be honest. Or to finally be free of that nagging boss. To be real with you, I just need another thousand dollars. That's all I need. I just need another thousand bucks. Who's with me? Anybody? Yeah? But Jesus, if he was with us, he would grab us by the shoulders this morning, and I think he would reorient us to your real need. It's not that those other items don't matter. They do. It's just that nothing else matters if this isn't central in your life, this thing that he wants to address with us. If this is not an ongoing reality, then none of those other things matter. So that through John chapter 3, what we come to see is our greatest need is to be born again. In fact, you just don't, you, you don't just need to be born again. You must be born again. And we're then left with a a question that will unfold into a few questions here this morning as it relates to this. How do we enter the kingdom of heaven? What does it take? what What did it take to bring us into the kingdom of heaven? Also, to what end are we brought into the kingdom of heaven? Does everyone make it into the kingdom of heaven? Well, to get at these questions this morning, our outline actually will at the same time not just be our outline for for how we're structuring the passage, but it will also be simultaneously the main argument of the passage. So that we see first, you must be born again, verses 1 through 8. And in faith, gaze at your sin and your Savior, verses 9 through 15, which will result 
in eternal life. Verses 16 through 21. Friends, Jesus has done many, many miracles. Like I said, he'd been gaining a following. A lot of people coming to him. He was attracting a lot of attention. And, and yet, even though he, had, he was surrounded by these people, he wasn't quick to reveal everything to him. He doesn't explain everything. And the reason is, John, he's going to state this here in, in chapter 2, at verse 23 through 25. Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem, he's there at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew All people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. So John is is saying, Jesus, he knows what's in people, and he's not going to entrust everything to them because he knows what's really in man. And then we get the snippet of Nicodemus, whom he is going to engage with, and whom he knows deep down what's really going on. It's a brilliant connection. Jesus knows Nicodemus's heart condition. Friend here with us this morning, I want you to know, Jesus knows your heart condition right now. He knows really what is going on deep down inside you. He knows that some here are close and yet not in the kingdom of heaven. Like Nick at night, who comes to, to learn what we first see in our outline The first thing we're looking at is you must be born again, verses 1 through 8. Look again at John chapter 3. I want to just look at those first three verses. We're going to highlight a few things here where he says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, John has made it clear in chapter 2 that people saw the miracles and they believed. Um, and, and Jesus is, is making it clear here that merely seeing the miracles and, and, and believing that Jesus is God or believing that Jesus is a prophet or something else is not enough. Seeing these miracles that Jesus has done and believing that Jesus is God is not enough. Recall a few weeks back where we mentioned that that Satan and the demons and all the forces of darkness believe. You, You do realize that if we gave them a quiz to the demons and said, just check which one here, is Jesus the Christ, yes or no, that Satan and the demons and all the forces of darkness would check yes. They would get that right. And yet... They're not in the kingdom of heaven. No, you see, it is more than belief is, the issue is more than just mere belief. What's the issue? Ah, you must be born again. Now, there does seem to be a level of humility as Nicodemus is coming to Jesus. He's he's recognizing even as a ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus has a very high uh, position, a ruler of the Jews. He's a teacher, if not the teacher of Israel. And, and he comes to Jesus, this nobody, no name from Nazareth, and he addresses him in a humble manner, calling him rabbi. That would be putting Jesus above him, saying, teacher, I'm coming to you as one who's going to teach me. And he's, and he's saying, we know that the works you do, they are coming from God. So he's coming with humility here. And, 
Jesus then takes the opportunity to show he knows what is in a man. He, he seemingly jumps to answer the question that Nicodemus has yet to even ask. Nicodemus hasn't even gotten the words out of his mouth and Jesus is already coming to answer his question. How does one see the kingdom of God? Actually, how does one enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus uses both those phrases here, see and enter, which is interesting. That helps us understand that seeing the kingdom and entering the kingdom, these are connected, they're bound together. And the answer that Jesus gives is a new birth. You see, when you were born, when I was born, we were born into this world physically as a baby. Uh, We were born in flesh into the ways of this world. And, And we see through scripture, it makes it clear, there's nothing natural in us that desires to walk with God. We're actually, as we're born into this world physically, we are born opposed to God. No Christian will enter the kingdom of God then without being spiritually born anew. And because this is difficult for our minds to, to wrap our minds around, Jesus describes all of this in terms of a pivotal passage in the Old Testament. And, and I want you to stick with me on this because we're going to be in a couple Old Testament passages here this morning, but, but this is absolutely crucial. First, that Jesus is going to address is in regards to the statement of being born again. Nicodemus is not sure of what he means. He's thinking, what, are you talking about being born again, like entering my, my mother's womb a second time and, and coming out again? That's not possible. What are you talking about, Jesus? To, to which he says, no, 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 no. You need to be born of the water and of the spirit. Now, much ink has actually been spilt over what exactly is meant by being born of the water in the spirit. Uh, spirit for us is a little bit easier to understand. You have a darkened sin spirit, but then this idea of our, our spirit coming to life and now having a, a, a spirit of love towards God and towards each other, we can understand that. But the water piece is, is de- hotly debated. If this is raises a lot of questions for you and you want to dive into this, see me after service. I have a resource I'll give to you. You can work through all the details on this. But for the sake of brevity this morning, I want to uh, bring before you what I believe is the most likely train of thought here. It, It all hinges on this fact. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a teacher of the Jews, was supposed to understand what Jesus is speaking of. We read later where Jesus says, you're the leader of Israel and you don't understand these things? It would be like us saying, you're the pastor. You're the pastor and you don't get this? You're the seminary professor and you don't understand these things? Because you see, Nicodemus, he would have been steeped in the Old old, uh, Covenant, the Old Testament. He would have been steeped in the law and the Psalms and the prophets He would have read these things. He would have meditated upon these things. And therefore, you and I, we need to start digging in our minds. Where is it in the Old Covenant that we read about spirit and water? And you start thinking, well, there's many, many, many places where we see uh, these things being spoken about, about God giving us a a spirit. Um, We we think of specifically as it pertains to water. There, There are many passages where we find God, he's pouring out his spirit or he's, he's um, cleansing us in a figurative way with water. But, but there's only a few places where these actually show up in the same location in connection with the idea of a new birth or the kingdom of God. 
Uh, one of those places would be over in Isaiah 44, verses 3 through 5. Um, there's another place that is somewhat debatable in Joel chapter 2. But there is no debate that Ezekiel chapter 36, this comes most plainly and clearly in view. And so listen as I read these words. And I'm going to emphasize so you catch that it's there. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 25, where the prophet Ezekiel is hearing from the Lord, and the Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. There's the new birth. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you hear it? Water and spirit. And what is all this in connection with? To to be cleansed. The new covenant. Given a new heart. The picture in New Testament terms is you are dead in your sins and trespasses. Sin had corrupted your hearts and and it left us with no hope. If I snap my finger right now and turn all of us in this room, we have our heart beating right now. It's beating. But if I snap my fingers and turned your beating heart into a heart of stone, you would physically drop dead right now. And God says, Spiritually, that's what your heart is like. Spiritually, you are dead. And therefore, you and I have all needed to have a spiritual heart transplant. And friends, this is something that only God can do in you. You and I, left to our own resources, we have no hope. It is God who gives you what you need. He is the giver of life. Genesis chapter 2, on the day that you eat of this uh, fruit of this tree, you shall surely die. And Adam and Eve and you and I spiritually have all eaten that fruit and therefore we are as good as dead. And it is just a matter of time before your physical body catches up with your spiritual reality. Unless you are born again. And if you're not convinced that spirit and water here are in reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, you just need to consider what comes next in John chapter 3. Look here at verses 6 through 8. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel to you. I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know from where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus, don't marvel at this. The effects of being born again are like the wind. Now, recently we just experienced this, didn't we? With the storm, with the ice, with the wind. I mean, there were times I'm looking out my front window and I'm looking at the trees that are blowing towards my house and I see them going like this and then I I don't know why or how or what's going on, but then they just blow back the opposite direction And many of you have told me about these microbursts of winds that will come through this area. So even while you have a strong wind blowing through the whole area, there will just be a a half an acre where the wind comes down in that particular area for whatever reason and takes out a bunch of trees in this one little microburst area. 
You see, when God is at work causing new life, it's like the wind. You can't predict it. You can't bottle it. You can't sell it. You can't force it. It's like the wind. And the only thing we can do is say, God has been at work. I've seen God moving. Now, I'm not sure that you knew if you knew this or not, but Ezekiel 37 comes right after Ezekiel 36. Did you know that? To which I want you to know what is in Ezekiel 37 is interesting because right after the prophet Ezekiel is hearing from the Lord about a new spirit, a new heart, uh, uh, a wind is also in connection here in Ezekiel 37. What's going on in 37? Um, God says, Ezekiel, come here. I want to show you something. He goes up to this valley and he's peering into this valley and he finds in the valley are all these bones, these dry bones. Now, the bones are all separated so that you end up having, um, you know, a skull over here, a foot over here, uh, you know, a femur bone here. These aren't whole skeletons. It's just a valley filled with random bones. And, and, and they didn't just die. They've been dead a long, long time. When, when bones are dry, they're dead. Which, at this point, the Lord says, now, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And, and the human logic would say, no, <laughs> there's no way. But we're dealing with the Lord here. So Ezekiel responds rightly, uh, Lord, you know, you know what can happen with these bones. And then God says, yes, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the breath, Ezekiel. And the winds come from the north and the south and the east and the west. And they bring life and into these bones so that they rise to life. It's a wonderful picture of the wind in connection with Genesis and God's breath breathing life. Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't get these things? You need a new birth. You need a new birth, Nicodemus. You need one of water and of spirit. You need a cleansing of your vile heart. You need life-giving spirit to enter you, turning your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Well, how does this come about? It's a miracle. It's unpredictable. It's like the wind. Like the wind that has breathed the breath of life into the bones in Ezekiel's vision in which the bones are pictured as a restored army of God. Christian, this morning, if the reality of this sinks in like it should, the reason you're here in these seats in faith this morning and believe in Jesus Christ, it's not because you're smart it's not because you're wise or talented or that you just happen to randomly be in the right place at the right time. No. It is because the work of God was done in your heart to turn you from a heart of unbelief to belief. And Nicodemus still doesn't get it. We see that in verse 9 here. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? How can these things be? Well, verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If we've told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe if we tell you of heavenly things? Friends, man is so resistant 
on their own to the work of God that when they have the scriptures open to them and they read them, they still cannot fathom how this happens. And believe me that there's going to be Bible scholars, there's going to be Bible teachers, and very sadly to me, there will be pastors who do not enter the kingdom of heaven because they never were born of the water and the spirit. Because they remained in a hard-hearted state, trusting in themselves. They put their hope in their good moral efforts, not in God, who does the work of the new birth in us. The 18th century preacher, George Whitfield, who's in connection with the first great awakening, he would get on his horse and he'd ride from town to town to town to town. And everywhere he would go, he would say, you must be born again. And people would follow along with him and sometimes they would end up in another town where he would go and preach and then come back and, and they would hear him preach again, perhaps a different passage, a different message, but then eventually somewhere in there, you must be born again. And finally, people were hearing this over and over. So a man came to, to Mr. Whitfield and said, George Whitfield, you, you keep saying, we must be born again. We must be born again. We must be born again. Why? He said, because you must be born again. And the point is made. There is no other relief. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other hope for you and I except that a new birth occurs. A birth that comes about by a movement of the spirit in our hearts, turning our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Born again here, friends, is in the passive in the Greek. That's important. It means that it's not something that you do for yourself. You don't cause yourself to be born again. It's not something that you actively do. No, rather, God blows this into your heart and life. And all of a sudden, you say, I believe. I believe. I can't believe it took me so long. I've heard people say, Pastor, you know, I've been sitting in the pew for years. And for decades, at times, I've been sitting there listening to this gospel. And then all of a sudden, one day, like no day before, I was hearing the truth of Jesus. And now I want to run for my sin and embrace Jesus as my only hope. Friends, that's the wind blowing. That's spirit. That's water. That's being born again. You must be born again. What Nicodemus ought to have done at this point, he ought to have received all of this with acceptance and joy and wonder. He should have said this, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. Uh, We know that what you're saying is true and right and good. This is good news. But at this point, to our amazement, he doesn't. He he seems to um, wonder how all this can be. And to my amazement, Jesus, who's so patient with Nicodemus, he knows exactly where he's at. He's trying to help him along. He continues the discussion by not only saying you must be born again, but you must put your faith and gaze at your sin and your Savior. In faith, gaze at your sin and your Savior. And we see this section beginning at verse 13 through 15. I want to pick up at, or sorry, 9 through 15, but I want to pick up at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now here we're launched into an entirely different illustration to help us understand the gospel. 
Um, and it's, it's begun by a new birth, but it, that's caused by God himself. It, it is a new birth that then leads, though, into this faith and healing and eternal life. And again, just by way of reminder, John is very much steeped in the Old Testament. And this reference to Moses and the bronze serpent brings us back to a scene from the Exodus scene. Uh, Church, I'm so glad you women are going through the Exodus uh, book right now because how much of the New Testament is just embedded in that whole scene? Uh, The Jews, uh, the the Hebrews are in slavery in Egypt. They come out into the wilderness. They're wandering um, in sin. God brings judgment, but eventually they cross over the Jordan River to the promised land. But while they were in that wandering season there in the wilderness, well, they began to become ungrateful. They weren't appreciating the type of redemption that God was doing and that it was going to take time. And so they grumble. They're ungrateful. They complained to to Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food for God was providing manna that kind of, that rained down out of heaven for them. And so the Lord in response, he sent serpents which bit the people and they would die. Now, after enough biting and, you know, uh, seeing people die from these serpents, the, the, the people cried out. They realized, we've sinned. This is not right. This, this is why this has come upon us. So they say, Moses, will you intercede for us? Do something. We're, we, we can't go on being bitten, dying like this. And so Ma- Moses cries out to the Lord. And then the Lord um, says, I'm going to provide a way. Uh, first, uh, Moses, I want you to take a bronze serpent and put it up onto a pole, up onto a staff, a pie. Now, if the people are bit by these serpents, they'll be bitten and maybe they've got 24 hours left. But once bitten, if they go over to the, the, the pole with the bronze serpent and they look up at the, the serpent, what will happen is they will, they will be spared. They will, their life will be saved. What a wonderful picture of the good news. What the people are having to do is to gaze upon the serpent and first recognize that the serpent is in connection with their sin. You see that? When they look upon the serpent, they're remembering, this is in connection with my sin, my grumbling, my lack of trust, my lack of belief in God, my lack of hope in God. So when I gaze upon the fact that the serpent bit me and I'm looking up Upon this serpent, I'm seeing it in connection with my sin. And then in faith, trusting in God, he heals them so that they can live. So we grumble. We sin. And death comes upon us. Man rebels and the lightning strikes. On one hand, you can say, well, that is what mankind deserves. It's really the bad news that we should all experience. The lightning bolt comes down. We deserve the bad news that Job received when he heard that he lost everything. Uh, you, you, you grumble and you deserve to be bitten by the poisonous viper that will kill you. Your little white lie means that you should drop dead at the door like Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. We should receive immediate judgment. But we misunderstand the scripture if we stop there. Thank the Lord that these examples are not what we all experience. Rather, we experience grace. Oh, in sin we are bitten and death is, well, it's, it's at hand. But in faith we look upon the one on the pole and we are healed. With eyes of faith, you and I look upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And what do we see there? We recognize that's our sin. Jesus Christ whipped 
beaten, bloody, pierced through, naked, ashamed, mocked, hanging, bleeding, and dying. That's your sin. Your sin is that ugly. And at the same time you're gazing at your sin, you're seeing your Savior. For that's your Savior that hangs there in your stead, dying the death that you deserved. We're gazing upon our Savior so that in His righteousness, it would all be applied to our account. You see that for our sake, He made Him to be sin so that we in Him might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that belief now in the one who died has now come into the equation. You must be born again. And not only born again, but you must in faith look and gaze upon your sin and Savior. Dying the death you deserve, but we don't stop there. We now will see as we press on this unique twist is that this will lead into eternal life. The number in the, the numbers 21 scenario where they're bitten by the serpent, remember that even though they're bitten and they gaze upon the serpent, they're going to die again. But when we gaze upon this Savior on the cross, we're, we, we may die a physical death, but really this is dying to, lie, to live, to truly live. And so this is what comes about here as we see verses 16 through 17. You know, in... in all of the Bible, there's nothing more quoted or probably known than Matthew chapter 7, which is, do not judge lest you be judged. It is the most well-known verse that is repeated over and over because um, people want to embrace that. They don't want to embrace the rest of the Bible, but they want to embrace that piece. But just under Matthew 7 would be this other passage that is so well known it's it's John 3:16 that we find on our on our bumper stickers it's when you're watching the football game it's up on the big placards you'll see as you're scanning through the crowd someone will be holding John 3:16 it's probably the second most well known verse and so listen as i read it for god so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I think the ESV footnote is helpful when it says that this phrase could also be put this way. Um, This is the way in which God loved the world. As often is the case, many people are dropped into John 3.16 and they don't, they don't understand. John 3.16 is just one verse in this whole section and they, they miss verses 1 through 15 that talk about how this whole new birth came about. You see, John 3.16 is not telling you how you, be, you, you are entering the kingdom of heaven. It is actually telling you the results and the type of love that God has. It's talking about the work of Christ and the fruit of that work. If you want to know how you get in the kingdom of heaven, you need to understand verses 1 through 15 as we've covered. No, the the work is first here that we see of God is a loving work. You and I, we've never known a love like this. Never. Don Don Carson rightly points out that when we think of the world, we tend to think of of the son coming to love something that's so cute and and cuddly. It's almost like a a baby puppy, a new new puppy. You know, when you get a new puppy, they they don't stink yet. And and their fur is the softest. 
And they're just so sweet. Even when they eat your slippers, you're kind of like, oh, that's just so cute. I don't care. There's this essence of, you know, they can do no wrong. And I think many people, when they think about, for God so loved the world, they say, well, yeah, of course he loved the world. We're just, we're like that cute, cuddly puppy. Why wouldn't he love us? Not realizing that in the gospel of John, the world is never portrayed as a cute, cuddly puppy. In John chapter 1, the world is a place that is filled with sin. In John chapter 7, the world is the people who not only hate the disciples, but they hate Jesus himself. In John chapter 12, we read that the world is the place that is ruled by Satan. In John chapter 17, the world is a place that does not know the Father and does not know God himself. So you see the world in John's gospel is in a vile, wicked, evil place. It's not a cute, cuddly puppy. But how did God, you, 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 you have to ask, how is it that God loved the world, that place that is so awful and vile? What kind of love is it that God has? It's a kind of love that says, I will love the unlovable. A world which deserves to be bitten by the serpent. That's the kind of love that I will have. And how is it exactly that God loves this unlovable world? Well, we go back to Father Abraham in Genesis. Where Father Abraham, he's going about his whole life and God intervenes and says, Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great name. I'm going to make your name uh, so great. I'm going to expand your family. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. They're going to be like the sand that's over here in the sandy river, just everywhere, kind of permeating everything. That's going to be your family. And then you start to say, well, how is this all going to come about? Because Abraham's really old and he has no children. And then time goes on and more time. And by now, Abraham and Sarah, they're in their 90s. This is impossible. It's not going to happen. Until finally he has a son, Isaac. And you go, okay, we see how. It's so great. Abraham finally has a son so that the promises of God to Abraham can be fulfilled. Until God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go march up to the mountain. And I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. I want you to kill your son as a sacrifice. And we go, this, this shouldn't be. And Abraham takes up Isaac and he prepares him for the sacrifice and the dagger is about to come down to, to kill him and the angel appears and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop, stop. This was a test. It was only a test of the emergency broadcast system. If this was not a test, you would have allowed him to go through, right? Why? Because God was right that it was Abraham's son who would be sacrificed. But it wasn't Isaac. It was his great-great-grandson. In fact, it wasn't just his son. It was God the Father's son, his only son whom he loves, whom he said, this is not a test. This is for real that you will bear the iniquities of my people on that cross, providing forgiveness for their sin so that you would pay the penalty and be able to save them from sin, from death, from hell. This is, friends, is the purpose and the intention why Jesus came into the world. For Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but he came in order that the world might be saved through him. 
And here's the sad news to me is that not all people are receptive of this coming light. Why is it that people would turn off away from such good news? Why is it that people would spurn their only hope? Why is it that not everyone will make it into the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus answers this here in John chapter 3 at verses 18 through 21. He says, whoever believes in him who is, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Friends, this brings us to the stark reality that we were created to love. There's not one person in this room right now who does not love. What sin does is distort our loves. It, it means the most hateful person you've ever met still loves. That person may love darkness. They might love their sin. They might love rebelling against God, but they, they do love God. I mean, they do love something. And, and men and women might refuse the grace of God. They refuse the gospel. They, they love their sin and darkness. And because of this, they stand condemned. But, but the good news is for anyone who's here right now in that place this morning, just because you're in that place this moment doesn't mean that that's where you need to end up and remain. Some here are in a place where they say, yes, I've indeed sinned and fallen short. They, they were, as it, as, as it were, they've grumbled. They've been bit by the serpent. Judgment has come upon them. So that they will go to the grave refusing to acknowledge their sin. And, and rather than gazing upon their sin and gazing upon their Savior, they will love the darkness and to the darkness they will go. But think about Nicodemus for a moment. You see here as we close out, we, we actually have in the person of Nicodemus another category we need to think about. He may not be a disciple at this moment. He may not even be, uh, uh, he may have never become born again, but there are a few things that highlight and tip our hand in the direction that perhaps he was on the path of coming to the place where he is born again. Uh, you, you see, in John chapter 7, Nicodemus is one of the Pharisees who actually defends Jesus, saying, rather than killing him and destroying him, let's at least hear him out. Um, he wants to weigh him rather than to judge him. And then in the final chapters of, of John, we find that Nicodemus joins up with Joseph to help bury Jesus. That would have been a risky endeavor. It would have put his chips in with, with the disciples and, and the apostles. And, and it would have uh, attached his name to Christ in some way. But we find that he is there helping uh, do this. And so at least we see in the person of Nicodemus, we have a portrayal of a man who's in favor of Jesus, even if his commitment is not yet at the level of the apostles. So Nicodemus, we have a particular category we must think upon. A, a person who is favorably drawn towards Jesus and yet at the same time is not actually born again, not a true disciple of Christ, at least at this point. So here is a question for you. I wonder how many Nicodemuses we have in our church. People who may be drawn towards Jesus, but are unwilling to commit their entire lives to him, unwilling to proverbially, un proverbially drop their nets and follow him. Friend, this morning, I hope that you're willing to wrestle with the reality of Jesus.
Is he really who he says he is and will he save you through his atoning death? I'm so glad that when we read John 3.16, it doesn't say all those whose lives are perfect. We read John 3.16, it doesn't say all those who tromp down on others and somehow rise to the cream of the crop, they will rise to heaven. It doesn't say the smartest and the brightest and even the most loving. It says whoever. For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son whom he loved so that whoever, whosoever, believes in him and trusts and puts his life in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Thank you, Jesus, that there are no preconditions to this except that we are sinners. And so this morning, we can all respond with hearts that Nicodemus should have, rejoicing that the fight is over. Recall that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Um, He would have spent hours every week, if not days out of his week, trying to obey the law perfectly, trying to cover up his sin, but never fully able Trying week after week and year after year to turn his heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And here for the first time, he's coming to hear the good news that with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Friends, John 3 doesn't pull any punches. It states it both in the negative and in the positive why Christ came and how we are reconciled to him. The negative is those who love darkness and spurn the only hope of the coming son are already judged. They're already condemned. But the good news is that all who are born by the Spirit will, in faith, look upon the one and only son who saves them so that they will not perish but live forever. You must be born again. And in faith, Gaze upon your sin and Savior, and by His grace, you will enter into eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, we cry out to you that you would send the wind of your Spirit into this room, into these hearts. Father, we pray that we would see the effects of that wind that it would wreck our lives in good ways, that it would build us up anew afresh in the gospel. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes of faith to really see how wicked our sin is and yet to see how amazing the grace in Christ is. Be with us, we ask in this. In Jesus' name, amen.